Um, but there was a moment in time there where we're thinking, well, should we, you know, focus exclusively on telehealth? Like we had the opportunity to do that. We hadn't signed a lease, right? We, we, we could theoretically have done that. I think we, we really um, thought long and hard about, you know, our population and their needs and decided to, you know, continue on with the center base, but have, you know, more supplemental telehealth where needed. Um, ultimately, like you know, autism, one of the biggest deficits of autism is um, the social aspects of it. And, you know, not having an in-person connection with therapists and the ability to meet other children and socialize with other people in person, we feel is really not going to allow um, the children to you know, get up the curve and really catch them up to their developmental, neurotypical development um, peers. Hey, it's Josh. Before we get started with this episode, I just want to ask that if you're listening, please subscribe in your podcast app so you'll get notifications when new episodes come out. And if you like this episode, share it with a friend and maybe leave a review. It will really help us out. Okay, enjoy the episode. Breaking news tonight, the coronavirus forcing millions more Americans into virtual lockdown. Our country wasn't built to be shut down. This is not a country that was built for this. It was not built to be shut down. America will again and soon be open for business. Uh, very soon. A lot sooner than uh, three or four months. It's There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of fear. Um, there's a lot of, you know, wondering if you're risking your life by going to work. Welcome to Restarting America. I'm Jeremy Greenberg, and I'm excited to interview Brad Zellinger, the founder and CEO of Stride Autism Centers. Brad was inspired to find Stride Autism Centers by his adult sister who has severe ASD-related disorder called Rett Syndrome. He is personally and professionally dedicated to supporting individuals with complex needs. Graham began his career in investment banking at Molos & Company in New York. Before founding Stride, he was a private equity investor at Madison Dearborn Partners TZB Group, where he evaluated, executed, and oversaw investment and growth-oriented companies. Graham earned an MBA from Harvard Business School and a BBA with high distinction from the University of Michigan Ross School of Business. He serves on the board of Rhett Sidrum's Research Trust and Asper Tech, and a treasurer of the Illinois Association of Behavior Analysis. Thank you, Brad, for being here today. So, Brad, clearly you've had a lot of success in uh, building up your career in financial services and uh, going to Harvard and, and uh, having this great uh, financial backing of business. Why did you decide to change gears? Yeah, I, I think um, I definitely was on this structured career path in the finance world i really dedicated myself you know academically and professionally to kind of moving up in that area and it was something that you know i really was excited about but you know i really had an insight uh, a couple of years ago when i decided to make this change that you know i wasn't really um i wasn't really converging my two primary identities as a person. You know, I had this identity on the business side that 
I was working towards and I had this other identity of being, you know, the sibling to someone with the severe autism disorder, as you mentioned. And, you know, I wasn't really bringing those two things together. And there was actually a way to go and do that. Um, and as soon as I kind of realized that that was an opportunity, you know, that's when I realized I was on the wrong path and I needed to make a change. So, you know, as, as mentioned, you know, my sister has um, an autism-related disorder called Rett syndrome, and it really uh, has impacted my worldview. It's impacted my entire family's experience you know, really, really meaningfully. Um, the sort of supports that she needs on a daily basis are uh, fairly significant. And, you know, I think when you just grow up with something like that and see the struggles that she faced and see um, kind of how our entire family had to come together in order to sort of realize her full potential and to ensure that she had a joyous and as independent a life as possible, you, you know, it just makes a really strong uh, influence on how you look at things. And, you know, that has led us to obviously, A, support her directly, but B, you know, try to give back to the community. So, we were involved in lots of nonprofits. I serve on the board of Rettsenstrom Research Trust, um, another board called the Spiritech, and some other uh, nonprofit-related things. So this was a huge part of my life and identity. And um, and so there was an, a moment uh, again two years ago where a friend of mine had, had told me about this book. It was called Autism Matters. And uh, it was written by a founder of a company very much like the one that I've most recently founded, which really helped children with autism develop communication skills, social skills, and address you know, uh, behavioral challenges that they face in order to lead more joyous and independent lives. And it talked about how there was a huge need for services like that discussed the the ways in which you could deliver those services in a very high quality fashion and how there was a distinction between low quality and high quality providers and it was really ending with a call to action around building more services and more capacity for these services throughout the country and in reading that it was just this massive aha moment of while wow, I have this business background, um, I've been working, trying to help um, hot, you know, growth companies expand and scale and, um, and all of that as part of what I do professionally. And here's this opportunity to take that and apply it directly to something that's so, so super close to home that will make an enormous difference um, you know, if I succeed at it. And so, you know, just in seeing that opportunity, that's when I realized that I was on the wrong path and needed to just correct my course and, and give this a shot. And so that's, that's where really Stride Autism Centers, which is what I'm working on now, um, that's where it all came from. So tell me, what was the first step then when you realized this is what I got to do? What does that mean? Like, where do you start from there? Yeah. So I took kind of an approach that I, I guess, was trained to do in the investing career path that I was on. So, you know, oftentimes 
when we're getting up to speed on a particular industry or some niche that we have no knowledge about. In this case, obviously, I had some personal knowledge of what therapies were like because my sister has seen, you know, 50 different therapists throughout her life. But, you know, the intricacies of that, I was not, I didn't fully understand, you know, what it takes to be a great clinician and um, all, all of the things that go into a really, um, you know, top drawer therapeutic uh, program. So I, I started with what we do in, in any moment like that in investing, which is expert calls. So, you know, I got on the phone with people all across the country that held academic roles at different schools, you know, everywhere from University of Southern California to Northwestern to um, University of Pennsylvania um, and all in between and really ask them questions around, you know, what makes a great clinician, um, what types of therapies work, what models work best, um, what is, what is, what does the research and evidence say, you know, is going to be the best type of program. Um, And I tried to piece together, you know, what I wanted to build and what are, if I wasn't going to build it and I was going to maybe buy it, what, what were the types of things I wanted to look for um, in a, in, in a practice if I was going to, you know, make an acquisition. And, and that really just informed that having all those conversations and, um, you know, digesting all of that was really what led me to understand what it is I was either going to look for or build. Um, and then ultimately, you know, decided to build on my own. What has been then like the biggest challenge then since you've been starting out and, and getting this off the ground? Yeah. So I, when you're starting a clinical business and you're not a clinician, you know, there's, I think the hardest part is like, you know, first understanding what it is, uh, you know, that whole pro- research process that I did up front, I think was really, um, I'll say maybe that wasn't the most difficult thing, but it was, it, that, that is a challenging thing is to really, to really deeply understand those aspects that, you know, um, generally, if you're a clinician, you're spending years and years developing and honing as part of your training. Um, so I had to sort of, you know, do my best to understand all that stuff without going through that training. So that I think is, you know, one of the big challenges of this. Um, the other thing was, this is all about the people. So, you know, de- delivering a high standard of care means that you're, you're bringing in someone with great training and background who's you know, mission-driven, um, really eager to learn and grow, and has all of these soft attributes in terms of being able to connect and develop rapport with families and children and, and all that. So the, big, you know, the next biggest challenge was finding the right people to bring onto the team. and. Um, and, and, and not necessarily being able to evaluate their clinical quality because I'm not a clinician myself. Um, so that first piece of like, who are we gonna bring on as our clinical director? Who's gonna oversee the work that we do across our locations and who's going to mentor and support our staff? That was a really um, challenging decision. 
Um, and then who, who, are, who are we going to bring on that would, other licensed professionals that we would bring on, um, you know, underneath that individual, that that was another huge challenge of who are we gonna bring onto this team to set this up for success? Um, I think those two things were really the, the most challenging um, aspects of getting this going. I could see that. So thank you for sharing. So uh, I've, as you've told me, this uh, business is, uh, it's been evolving and it's a lot of been evolving probably during the pandemic. Um, kind of talk to me about it before the pandemic, what that was like for you, what stages you were there like, at before the pandemic and, and, then, um, and then we can talk about how that's shaped you. Yeah, so really the process began with an intensive research project, if you will. Really, my, my goal was to understand deeply, you know, what do quality services for young children with autism, what does that look like? How do you deliver that? And, you know, um, what, what needs are unmet today? And how can, we, how can we create something that is just exceeding the standards of care that are out there? Um, and so, I really met with people from all over the country, frankly, um, you know, over the phone or virtually what have you, or in person. Um, at that time, you could have, you still could have meetings in person back in the day. Um, and so, you know, at conferences, I went to a variety of conferences um, across the country as well, and really tried to absorb as much knowledge as I could. So I met, you know, most, the, the average person I was speaking to was an academic person that did research in the autism uh, area. And I was just would pepper them with questions, trying to understand these things. And um, coming out of that, I had kind of a basic model for what I wanted to do. And then it was about finding a team to execute on that. So, you know, being a business person and not a clinician, like I don't have the licenses uh, and certifications to you know, provide the care directly and carry a caseload, um, I needed to bring on a team that was aligned with that mission and model that I had decided, you know, made the most sense and, and may, you know, bring that to fruition. And so, uh, you know, and again, this, this, this is a, a human services um, company. It's so important that you bring the right people in to ensure that you have a high standard of care. And so I spent a very long time recruiting. So I, I interviewed and talked to many, many people and ultimately, decided on, um, you know, we decided, it wasn't just me, but to bring on um, a really outstanding clinical director who was going to be a clinical leader in our organization and oversee all of the other licensed professionals that we bring on to our team. Um, and so uh, her name is Dr. Ashley Whittington Barnish. She's the university chair of ABA at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. Uh, one of the largest programs here uh, in Illinois and across the country that uh, prepares people for a career in, in this field of ABA and gets them prepared to get their uh, BCBA, which is the, the certification that is most relevant to what we do. And, um, you know, that was the first major decision point, you know, after interviewing lots and lots of people, you know, she came on board that, and that happened prior to COVID. Um, and it was just after that, that, you know, when we were starting to, you know, seek other people to come into the organization that would kind of, you know, report to her, 
never report to me. Um, you know, that we that COVID happened. And um, so basically, you know, every milestone from that initial, um, you know, major hire um, onward has been during the pandemic. So then talk about that. So what was it like back in March when you, when you start things, places are closing, where were you at the stage of uh, finding your first location? Um, and uh, what, what, what was the initial conversations with, with that uh, doctor like and kind of how you went from yeah. there? You know, I think there were a lot of questions at that time of like, how can we, like we have this unique opportunity to uh, curate our program to the new normal and to make sure that what we do is, you know, effective in this, in this new world. Um, Cause we hadn't, we had, I mean, we hadn't signed a lease. We hadn't brought any other team members. We hadn't completely developed every protocol that we needed. So, um, you know, we were able to, you know, build this with that in mind, which I think was really helpful. Um, you know, I hate to say that, you know, that it was like, it helped us. It did. I mean, COVID certainly hasn't helped us, but um, in a way we were allowed, we, 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 the, the fact that we hadn't, you know, done a tremendous amount of investing in building stride uh, prior to the pandemic meant that we could just be more nimble, right? And we could um, just, you know, um, you know, curate curate the organization um, for for the situation. So, so yeah, I think that that was that was an interesting time for us. But I think some of what we were worried about a little bit was, you know, does this completely turn our model on its head? Like we had been really focused on like center based services being the most effective. You know, oftentimes so there's kind of two model or now three models of service delivery. There's in the client's home. There's in a center, you know, which is like a piece of real estate where, you know, children come to your space and, and get treatment and therapy, uh, or there's telehealth. Um, you know, prior to the pandemic, telehealth was a very small amount um, of the total mix for across all providers. Um, but there was a moment in time that we were thinking, well, should we, you know, focus exclusively on telehealth. Like we had the opportunity to do that. We hadn't signed a lease, right? We, we, we could theoretically have done that. I think we, we really um, thought long and hard about, you know, our population and their needs and decided to, you know, continue on with the center base, but have, you know, more supplemental telehealth where needed. Um, ultimately, like, Autism, one of the biggest deficits of autism is um, the social aspects of it. And, you know, not having an in-person connection with therapists and the ability to meet other children and socialize with other people in person, we feel is really not going to allow um, the children to you know, get up the curve and really catch them up to their developmental, neurotypical development. Um, Peers. And so, you know, we've continued on uh, with the center-based model, although we've made some tweaks to uh, the center and the way that we do things to mitigate against uh, the pandemic and, and, and the spread of, of um, COVID within our centers. So tell me what the centers look like now. Yeah, so, you know, 
basically each center has a mix of both private individualized treatment rooms and open space. Uh, the open space is space that kids can have kind of more naturalistic uh, treatment where they can you know, cruise around on a tricycle or go down a slide or just, you know, kind of play and have more fun um, versus the treatment rooms, which is not void of fun, but they're, those are environments where there are fewer distractions, you know, um, kids can really focus on uh, learning a specific skill that they really need to acquire, you know, such as you know, something communications related, learning how to express themselves, um, learning how, you know, how to respond to their name and things like this. Uh, they're obviously really important to, to independence, um, but doing so in like a more, um, you know, individualized room. So, but now, you know, because again, because of, of COVID, um, you know, we're really, we're distance. We have these big open spaces in the center of our, um, of our centers. And there's a lot more distancing that is happening in those areas. So, you know, there's a lot, like really, it's unfortunate that we can't have as much socialization as we'd like, but, um, you know, we're kind of distancing in those areas and, and making sure that, um, you know, that we're, uh, you know, mitigating against uh, the risk of spreading COVID. So is there a capacity limit that you're worried about compared to what you normally can do? Or is it the same as normal? Yeah, yeah, we definitely have limited that. So, you know, each treatment room, um, you know, is large enough for multiple kids to be in, but we are not doing that. So, you know, we're limiting each room to one child. Um, we have some classrooms um, that are you know, much larger, maybe three times the size of a treatment room. You know, in those rooms, we've considered having multiple kids, um, but right now, you know, we're keeping every room to just one kid and one therapist. And, um, you know, that big open space, you can have multiple people. It's a, you know, pretty large uh, centralized space. Um, but yeah, it's definitely impacted that. And, um, you know, having like, because every child has one therapist that's working with them. Uh, it's this one-to-one -one ratio. So having four people in a room that's small would, would not make sense during COVID. So, you know, that's, that's a good, good point. And we've kind of limited um, our capacity during this time as well. So talk about some of the milestones that you've been able to achieve during COVID. I know you've mentioned that you've been able to majority of the milestone besides the big first hire was before was after COVID started. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, we hired on um, some really key team members. So our team has grown a lot. We have now, um, you know, two additional clinicians, um, one in the Des Moines, Iowa area and one in Chicago. Um, fantastic uh, leaders of, of the respective uh, markets and also have hired a number of therapists that, that those clinicians oversee as well. And so we've built out you know, these teams and I think a really awesome culture. Uh, we brought on um, you know, about 10 clients now already in, in the Des Moines area and, and hope to bring on uh, some additional clients in the new year. And you know, we've opened up two locations um, during this time as well, uh, which included, you know, doing construction and renovation and, and those types of things. Um, so, you know, a lot, a lot has been uh, built during this time. And I like, you know, just coming back to like where this all began and what this is about, like our mission is to provide just the highest standard of care as possible to children and families, you know, impacted by autism and 
we continue to do that and we we're, we're definitely growing and increasing the number of, of families that we're going to be able to impact positively and um yeah i think it's just really exciting that we've been able to like see really stride um bring that mission to life already in a great way in the des moines area and we're excited to to get that going in chicago um as well um pretty soon so tell me about what has been potentially the most biggest challenge for you either personally or for the business or both yeah COVID. yeah um yeah i think you know um i think there are like two buckets you know there's the client side and then there's the staff side so i think you know clients are uh, kind of weighing the risks of you know contracting covid and bring that into their household um you know even though we're doing everything we can to prevent it like there's a risk of course of, of that happening by sending your child to a therapy center um they're weighing that risk with the risk of if my child, you know, who's when we serve children to ages two to six, if my child who has autism does not get treatment during this critical window of their life, because as you're younger, like you just have more plasticity in your behaviors. And, you know, the earlier you intervene, the better chance you have of, of really bridging that gap between, you know, your child with autism and, and um, a neurotypical child. And so, um, they're saying, well, I'm, I'm weighing that risk of COVID versus the risk of no treatment. And I think for, in the beginning, people were thinking, you know, maybe maybe we can push this off. But it got to a point now where we're almost a year into COVID. And I think families are saying, look, I think we, we really like my child is just not getting the support they need in the home. They're not getting it at school. They're not, you know, whatever virtual um, program they're having is not cutting it. And, and so they're deciding um, to, to make this, you know, to, to enroll in a program like ours. But I think one of the biggest challenges was kind of like, it's really for our families is, is what, what do we do right now? And I think so we've had, you know, talk to families about this and kind of help them evaluate that and, um, you know, help them through some of that decision making. Um, you know, the other thing I mentioned is, you know, a huge part of one of the biggest deficits of autism is, is social skills and it's, it's core to the treatment program that we have. And so how do you, how do you improve those social skills when it's COVID and you can't interact with other people the way you'd want? So that's a big challenge too, is like trying to find moments where we can approximate that, you know, where we've talked about as a team, you know, using, you know, having kids in different rooms and using iPads to connect with children in different rooms so you could at least see each other connect that way um, or do things distanced, you know, but that's not as, as natural as it might sound for, you know, kids that are two to six years old to, to, to engage that way. So that's been a challenge. You know, the other thing is just wearing a mask. Um, you know, one thing we've done um, that we've offered to staff is like a, a clear mask. There's actually an FDA approved mask called the clear mask, uh, which is like a plastic component that's translucent, um, but still effective as a mask. So that's one thing we've offered to try to enable kids to at least see expression and begin to, you know, just get more comfortable with, with our staff. Cause that's, I mean, our staff is trying to develop a rapport with the kids. And if they're wearing a mask and you can't see the emotion, you can't. Um, and again, you know, 
sensing emotions and the social skills elements is, 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 is a, you know, a challenge in autism. And so that's, that's another issue that we've tried to overcome, you know, at least by using like an alternative mask. Um, and then, you know, we've had to make other, other changes that, you know, are, are hard for parents. You know, we opened our center and not a single parent has been in the center. So we have a policy that's curbside drop off and pick up. Um, and that we're not doing any tours or letting in any visitors. It's really just the staff and the kids are allowed in to, to kind of mitigate the risk of spreading COVID. And, um, and so that's been hard to convey that to parents. Um, I think it's a huge vote of confidence that they've, you know, that we have as many clients as we have, even though the parents haven't even been able to, to come in and see. Um, but, you know, we're also really eager to show them as soon as we can, because we, you know, we, we, I think we've built a really nice program and it's really awesome for the kids. We want to sh showcase that as well. But uh, that that's also been a challenge of just, you know, telling families that this is kind of um, the new normal. Um, this is the way that we have to operate. And, you know, no, I'm really sorry. Like, I know you want to see the space, but we, we can't let you in at this time. So those are some things just kind of on the client side. And then I think on the staff side, um, it's really about safety and just ensuring that people remain um, healthy and don't we don't have an outbreak in our center I think that's the biggest um, thing on our minds and so I guess the challenge is just doing what we can to to avoid that so tons of sanitizer all over the place you know requiring masks requiring distancing um, and and by the way we're also building a culture from the ground up during this time which means we can't go out as a team the way we normally would we you know, can't engage with each other the way we normally would. I think um, despite that, we've, I think, done an, a, a good job of, of bringing in the right people that are starting to build a good rapport. Um, but that's also been a challenge. Like, how do you build a culture for an organization when you have to modify your behaviors so much from the way you normally would build, um, you know, a relationship with someone else? Yeah. Those seems like tremendous challenges and it's incredibly impressive that you're finding ways to kind of tackle them and overcome them. Uh, very cool. And uh, bringing a lot of people, uh, very needed development in a crucial time. So um, you should feel really good about that. Um, I'm wondering though, um, if you can go back to January, thinking about like where you could tell yourself to potentially help out this process um what do you tell yourself anything differently i know you've had so many milestones during this period and you've built it up a lot during this period but i'm wondering if you can kind of go and tell yourself something then yeah i mean like less on um the covid front i'd say just you know we're you know a new a new practice and i'm a new just honestly candidly a, a new ceo right so I'm constantly learning and, and needing to evolve my, the way I interact with people, um, the way I make decisions, the systems I use to get through a day, you know, taking notes a certain way, emailing a certain way, you know, uh, whatever. And um, I think it's just, it's been a, a pro the whole thing has been this major evolution of, of the way I live my life and, and um, what my priorities are. And I think, if I could go back in time, I just would force myself to have more structure. I think 
one of the things that as a business leader that I've struggled with is you know, some of the things that made me successful in private equity in my other roles um, are not the same things that allow you to be successful when you open up a center and a second center. And, you know, we have plans to open a third and fourth and by Q1 of 2021. And, you know, it's just not the same. Those are just, you need completely different ways of operating in my mind to get those things done. Um, and so I would have probably implemented certain systems and structures that um, just like made, made that a little bit um, easier for myself. And so I just can, again, I, I know it's a little nebulous what I'm saying, but I, I continue to evolve and, um, you know, I think where I'm at and the way that I operate will be, a look, will look a lot different in one year than it does right now. And it looks a lot different now than it did um, back in January. Yeah. Um, so what do you think is going to be most important for your business um, as you go forward? I know you said you're opening a couple of centers. Yeah, I, I think the biggest, most important thing for us, and it comes back to our mission of providing a high standard of care to the kids that we serve and their, you know, and their families, um, is just bringing in the right team to make that happen. So I think it's all going to be on the human resources side, continuing to build a great culture with the team that we already have. We're all rowing the same direction. We're all really excited about our mission and getting better at what we do, learning, growing, and then bringing on new people that can help you know, realize that as well. So that's additional clinicians, additional therapists, um, and training them um, appropriately and to a high, you know, to a high standard. Um, those are going to be our, our biggest challenges. Obviously, like this, this labor market makes it, you know, on the margin somewhat easier to bring people onto your team. But I think keeping um, the standard of care really high means that that doesn't help us so much. Uh, we really have to be very selective with the people we bring in, that they mesh with our culture, um, that they're really motivated and mission driven like we are. And, um, and we feel like they can make a difference. So I think that that's going to continue to be the biggest thing. There are other areas that we need um, to execute on, but I feel like the kind of like the human resources part is, is really the most important and is what I folk try to think about most um, in terms of making sure we really excel in that area. Yeah, I think all businesses is so much about the people. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, so it's pretty amazing how you have been able to like shift your entire life like focus you've done you went to business school and undergrad then went to business school uh, for an MBA and then you were back in private equity and I know you've talked about um, your sister influences and your dad and uh, grandfather influences of med medical and I'm wondering what do you think uh, really inspires you and like maybe a combination of things like who or what is really what has like allowed you to make this giant shift in your life and um, you can talk more about that yeah you know, I just think it all stems from, well, A, having like the most supportive family, uh, parents and friends, like I'm exceedingly lucky to have that. Like, if you don't have that, I think it's really hard to have the confidence and faith and support that you're going to, if you go off and do your own thing, that you're, you're going to be okay. So I have that. I think that's, that was helpful. But really what, what 
has inspired this whole thing is is my sister like she from the just very beginning has just completely shaped my worldview how i see the world right um my perspective knowing just how lucky i am um and you are and and just everyone that doesn't have the challenges that she has and it, it just has been like the biggest influence on me you know from day one it that was the influence throughout my entire career just i think part of what i think pushed me to try to excel and um, work hard was that i had been given the gift to be able to do that and that i, I just needed to put in every ounce to take advantage of that frankly miracle that that i had been in a lot you know able to do that and um I think in seeing again this opportunity, this insight that frankly I felt ashamed that I hadn't even realized prior to you know reading that book. Once I had that insight, um, it was just no looking back. It was just so obvious to me that that was the way I needed to lead the rest of my life. And so, normally I think a, a wholesale change in your career path would be you know really jolting and like a complete you know shock to the system, right? To 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 like completely uproot that. But for me, it was so natural. It was I was convinced that was the right path for me. I had tons of motivation and passion behind it and wanting to to do that. I'm able to summon energy towards what I'm doing in ways that I've never been able to towards other initiatives that I've had in life. And so it, it's just been something that I don't regret at all and has been... Um, just really easy, Frank. I mean, this, this has been the hardest thing I've ever had to do, but it's been easy, an easy decision to live with and easy to push myself um, to to try to make stride, you know, a success and to make stride deliver the kind of impact that we want it to because, you know, it's just so um, a part of my my being, right, is, is to kind of do something that helps people like my sister and to kind of um, support families like like ours and so it's just a really cool opportunity that i had that insight you know that that uh, i read that book and that I'm, I'm on this path that's awesome and uh definitely lucky to have the family that you have it sounds like and um you and your sister are very lucky to have each other so uh, thank you um on uh on a separate note um i uh We've been asking many of our guests here um, that there's a lot of dual issues going on in America today with racism also playing a very important part of the dialogue and how businesses are interacting. And I'm wondering how is this impacting your business and what are kind of things you're doing to help uh, with that process? Yeah, uh, great question. I, I think a few months ago when you know, I heard helicopters above my head you know, every day and, and uh, we were in the Lakeview area here and there were a lot of rioting and things like that. I mean, this was really top of mind and con continues to be um, an incredibly important issue. And, um, you know, something we think a lot about as stride. So I think, first of all, it's, um, it's in our DNA, I think, to like help people that um, will just help everyone, frankly, like autism, um, you know, it doesn't discriminate. So, you know, every race, every socioeconomic class, every religion is impacted by autism. And it's all of the globe. It's not like a U.S. issue uh, or a challenge like the, 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 that happens only here as well. So um, we, 
in terms of serving our clients, we have a very diverse client base, again, by race, ethnicity, religion, socioeconomic class. Um, and, and, and we're excited about that opportunity that like, our clients are that diverse. I think it's really neat to be able to um, have a service that can help such a broad range of people. And then I think one thing um, you know, that we, we've done because we acknowledge that we all have blind spots. I think that's a huge, that's a huge thing that I think, um, I, I think I sort of knew prior to kind of Black Lives Matters, but it's, it's like even more paramount for me now of like, I have blind spots and we all do. And if you grow up in an area where um, there isn't as much diversity, or even if you do, like you just, you have blind spots. So one thing we do as part of our onboarding for all of our staff is a cultural competency training, um, which is it's a couple hours um, where we expose them to a training related on this topic. So help, which should help people kind of spot some of those blind spots and, um, you know, and, and, and better serve our clients because our, again, our clients are super diverse. And so we want to be, um, you know, thoughtful about how we interact with them. And then, you know, another thing that we do, you know, as a company is provide accommodations in certain cases to, for example, you know, one, one, one thing we've done recently for a family um, that speaks uh, Arabic actually is provide translator services to them. So this is a family that you know, the parents just do not speak, um, you know, English is a second language. And while they can speak some English, it's a really a challenge, especially for an initial assessment when our clinicians in the home, you know, in their environment, and we're trying to better understand the circumstances of their child and their family. Um, so we've, you know, go out of our way to bring on a translator for them to, to make sure that that happens. So this, I don't know if that gets to race, but it talks about how we think about difference as, uh, in our client base and how we want to make sure that we, um, you know, we, we um, you know, provide the best outcomes um, in light of our differences. And then, um, you know, from a staff standpoint, um, the reality is, the field that we're in is a predominantly white female driven field, or not driven, but that's the predominant kind of workforce. And so we are actively working on trying to diversify our staff and bring in people of all backgrounds. And our clinical director in particular is very focused on this um, and just doing what we can to um, you know, ha have a just more diverse team page. If you go to our website, I mean, I'll just admit that it's, it is a lot of white females that are on our page. And so I think it's important to acknowledge that and to say, you know, what can we do to try to recruit other people um, into our group that, and provide a more um, diverse work environment that ultimately, um, you know, leads to better outcomes for our families. Because again, our families are very, very diverse as well. So these are things that we think a lot about and we have more work to do on it. Yeah, that's awesome. I think everyone does have more work to do and that's kind of the point. Um, very cool. So um, uh, I'm thinking about now asking you if you can, if you can uh, go, if you could tell yourself something five years from now, I really want to take away from this pandemic. If you can like, there's obviously a lot of, good that's happened for your business during this period. Um, and personally, you've probably gone through a lot. 
what would you want to take away from this pandemic to kind of like help you move forward five years from now? Yeah, I think um, there's a lot. I, I, I wish I had more time to think about and answer that question, but but I, I think one of the the main things is just you need to be prepared for the things you can't prepare for and to just um, constantly um, just be aware that the world can change. You know, the world is a fragile place and what you think yesterday, um, your worldview, your truth yesterday might not be the same tomorrow. And I, it's really difficult to prepare uh, your business for something like COVID. But I think if um, if you're thoughtful about um, sort of unknowns and making sure that you don't introduce um, undue risk into your business, you can kind of get through time periods like this. You know, one thing that I think we'll be very thoughtful about, um, you know, going forward, you know, as we grow is like, what does our, just from a, it's like a, maybe it's my finance background, I'm thinking about this, but what does our capital structure look like? I think, I'd be very hesitant to have a lot of debt on this um, on this business. I think, you know, when COVID hit, um, most of the other players in this space, and we're fortunate in a way that we didn't have lots of centers and we didn't have, you know, uh, uh, a lot of debt on our balance sheet um, at that point. But a lot of providers did. You know, a lot of providers had that circumstance and a lot of their clients just went home and they stopped getting services. And so, you know, revenue dried up and they were in a really tough position. And so I think just being really cautious about that and being able to weather the storm like this is something that, um, you know, I'm acutely aware of now having, you know, seen what's happened to other people and um, having, you know, sort of lived through this moment. Uh, I think we'll always be really risk averse um, because of that. And, um, yeah, I'm, I guess in, in a way it's, um, it's a good lesson in, in that sense. So, you know, it's a terrible thing that's happened, but yeah, I think we should walk away with lessons like that. You talk about being risk averse and that's interesting. And the way people kind of interact with that idea, um, uh, is, is kind of like a, there's a lot of ways to like interact with risk and your tolerance of risk. Um, so I, I'm wondering as a last question, last words of advice that you can either give to yourself and probably also to other business owners as they think about um, how they're going to move forward. I know you kind of talked about what you, a lot of the ways that you already kind of addressed in the last question, but are there any other words of advice you'd give to business owners as we all move forward? Um, yeah, I mean, um, I just like doing your best. I mean, there's, you can only do your best right now and you should, you know, don't have any regrets about putting your best foot forward. This has been a really tough time for everyone. And um, I think if we just continue to do the best we can, um, something my grandma used to say, do your best. (laughs) Um, You know, I think um, that we won't have regrets about uh, the way we handled ourselves and, um, our outcomes. So I, I continue to try to do that, do my best each day. Every day is tough. Every day is a new day. Um, but it uh, looks like we're around a corner, hopefully. soon. I know that Chicago just got a whole bunch of, uh, and all across the country, there's a lot of vaccines. So hopefully we'll, we'll get through this soon. And um, yeah, 
uh, tomorrow will be a better day. Yeah. That's, uh, I like to think about the song Annie of like t- singing the song tomorrow. I actually listen to it sometimes. It's just like, the sun will come out tomorrow. And that's like a really good idea with the vaccine literally coming out today. So wish for the best for tomorrow for everybody. And uh, thank you for being here today on Restart America. I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, Me too. Thank you. It's been uh, really nice to hear your story and uh, wish you a lot of success in doing a pretty wonderful thing for the people you're helping out. So you should feel really good about that. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Restarting America podcast. Make sure to subscribe in your podcast app and visit restarting-america.com for more episodes like this one. Restarting America is produced by 97Switch.